Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Would you join me in welcoming up Kevin Bradford to open the Word of God for us today? Good morning. (laughs) Can I start by sharing a painful story? I know that's not the way we normally start off Sunday mornings and we don't um, don't want to scare you or anything, but it's just when I was developing this message, it was a story from a few years ago that I thought would be uh, appropriate. I was in uh, graduate school in Dallas and uh, I'd reached the end of the fall semester. I um, decided that I would hit the road and head out of, t- head out of town. And I was on uh, Highway 287 in West Texas, uh, somewhere between Decatur and Bowie, and I um, began to feel some discomfort in my eyes. Now, that wasn't really all that uncommon because uh, I'd been using contact lens for a number of years at that point, and uh, usually when I put them on in the morning, sometimes there'd be a little bit of discomfort, and at the end of a long day, uh, there also could be some discomfort, and this had been a long day. Uh, It was the final day of that fall semester. But as I was driving along and, and kind of battling with that, I, uh, I noticed that the discomfort turned to pain. Uh, it was a real distinct pain, a sharp pain. And I just, I didn't know what was going on. But at that time of night, it was well after midnight, and I was still about an hour and a half from my destination. I thought, you know, what do you do? Uh, even Wichita Falls, the only city of any real size on that route, I was pretty much shut down for the night. This was before GPS and before um, cell phones and things like that, so I couldn't really call ahead. I'll just have to keep driving. Well, the pain, uh, if anything, just intensified. And I, uh, as I was thinking, what is going on? It really became just not, not just confusing, but it was frightening. And I was thinking, am I even gonna make it? Uh, am I going to be able to keep steering the car between the lines? Because there was just a, it was a torrent of tears by that point. And, and I was struggling. I thought, what's going on? I don't know. Well, uh, I'm going to just a quick parenthesis here. I, I, I discovered what was going on later on. Um, the contact lens that I was using then, they're, they're nothing like the ones that we use today. In fact, the ones that I've got in right now. Uh, they were kind of a primitive version, and uh, what was going on was that the, uh, the heater in the car was working to basically dehumidify uh, all the air in the car. So as the humidity was dropping, my eyes were also drying out, and the contact lens basically scratched both corneas, and it was painful. It was as painful as it sounds. But I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that I was having trouble seeing. And I knew that I needed to keep pressing on. And the mile markers just couldn't come fast enough. But eventually, I was able to make out the skyline of Lawton, such as it is. Uh, And I thought, okay, just a little while longer. And some minutes later, I was able to pull up onto Elm Avenue and pull up in front of a house there, stumble across the, the lawn, and still with tears streaming down my face, knock on the door, and the, the one person 
that I wanted to see more than any other in the world at that time answered the door. It was my dad. My dad was a, a widower. My mother had passed away. And he wasn't a healthcare professional, but I just, I knew that he would have an idea of what needed to be done. And I knew that it didn't matter what time of day or night, nor what sorry state I might happen to be in, I could go knock on the door and he would take me in and do all that he could to comfort me. My dad, in my estimation, was a great man. He had his, he had his flaws for sure. Um, I wish that he would have been a little bit more talkative at times. He was kind of reserved, played his cards close to the vest. Uh, there are things that I just never knew about him. But he probably was a lot like a dad or a father that you know. And I, uh, I, I start with this illustration because I think that the institution of fatherhood in and of itself has been given to us by God to provide a, a window into God's own character. God himself, he calls himself father in the scripture hundreds and hundreds of times. And he's created the institution of fatherhood so that for better or for worse, we can see people walking around and get some glimpse of what our heavenly father is like. And I, and I say that knowing that uh, there are some really bad examples out there. Maybe that's been your experience. And, and I know that there will be some people that never knew their, their father. In fact, today, uh, the statistics say that there are four out of ten children in the United States has not seen their father in the past year. We're, we're living in a crisis, basically, in this country. Uh, I know that there are a lot of single moms that are doing great, great work. But just as genetic engineering is uh, taking us to a point where maybe fathers are completely optional in the birth process, uh, we've got this social experiment that's going on where they're just, if you look, turn on the TV, it's hard to find a, a wise, a responsible father figure who loves his family. It used to be the case, but really not anymore. And my, my conclusion is sort of what James Dobson has also uh, said. The very survival, our very survival as a people will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. We're living in a time of crisis. And as bad as that makes the time that we live in in our society, what I invite you to think about this morning is it also affects the way that we can get to know God. The message this morning is not how to be a better, better father. It's not to leave with some principles that, um, hey, I, I'll know how to shepherd my kids or, or do something like that at home. But I'd like for us to look at the, the foundation, the, the, the reason that we have fatherhood in itself is because God is our father. So as we look at this passage in the book of Romans this morning, in Romans chapter 8, Paul will tell us about some of the things that our Heavenly Father does for us. And in fact, three different blessings, three presents that He gives to His children, those that trust in Him. So we look at this, uh, this passage beginning in verse 12, and Paul begins by saying, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul starts off this section with this little phrase, so then, and basically he's looking backwards. He's looking at the, at least the first few verses of this chapter. And Mark developed this last week in his message. Uh, but you can remember that there was the idea that there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. And Paul also emphasizes in that passage the fact that the Holy Spirit now indwells us as believers. And now Paul says that there are implications, there are consequences as a result of these great truths. So then, he says, we are under obligation. The idea of an obligation is, is really easy for us to understand. It's the idea of a debt. Uh, we're, we're debtors in society. Not, not that we're impoverished, but whenever you uh, go to the bank and secure a home loan, you become a debtor to the bank. You receive a benefit and a, a nice loan to enable you to purchase a house. But the agreement is if you don't make payments, the bank could foreclose. Same thing if you buy a car. Uh, if you don't make the payments on that loan, uh, the dealership could, for, could uh, repossess your car, right? Students know about uh, debt. Uh, they receive uh, money, financial aid, for, um, for payments at school. And the idea is that after they graduate and get a job, that they're supposed to repay that debt. Know that it doesn't always happen just that way, but at least that's the idea. I don't know if, you've, uh, if you caught a little thing in the news this week. It has to do with something with financial aid, but uh, there's a university student in California, a guy named Brandon, and uh, he didn't receive financial aid. He didn't receive a loan, but he received uh, just a, a grant to allow him to purchase textbooks and supplies, $2,500. Instead of using it for that purpose, what Brandon decided to do was to uh, buy tickets to Thailand for him, for himself, and for his girlfriend. And they spent a month there enjoying, uh, enjoying a nice vacation. Well, somebody asked Brandon afterwards, weren't you supposed to use this for textbooks and supplies? And his, re his reply was, but we really wanted to go there. I would venture to say that Brandon probably would not understand this verse, okay? The idea of living with an obligation. It's not a law, but it's just an understanding, an understanding. You know, we would understand that if, uh, if say, you're the recipient of a kidney transplant. You, you don't go out and start binge drinking after that. There's an understanding that you're going to take care of your body. Or if you have a heart transplant, uh, you don't just start smoking, even if you want to. Well, we have been given life from God the Father, life that was only possible through the death of his son. And we shouldn't just continue on in sin just because we want to. We should live under this obligation, this understanding that even though we're not under a legalistic system anymore, we need to do the things that please God. And that's what Paul's referring to here. So he says that we as believers are under obligation. And he begins to develop a, a contrast, a, a, a negative and a positive aspect of this. He starts into it in, in verse 12, but then he catches himself, and he doesn't really develop the initial part of this contrast. But in, in verse 13, he does. He says in verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. 
So the, the fleshly or the sin nature leads to sinful activities, and that leads to death. And we know about the, the spiritual eternal death that the Scriptures talk about, uh, but this is a death, I believe, that's it's the kind of day-to-day alienation or maybe frustration that we could feel. Um, I don't know about you, a red-letter day for me last year uh, happened in, in November, and it was the day um, when the Bluebell ice cream was returned to the, the freezer aisle at the store. And I, I'll confess, I was 8 o'clock, I was at Walmart uh, hoping that I would hit the delivery guy just as he arrived there. And uh, to my great frustration, he didn't come at that time. So I went down to Homeland and uh, looked for him there. He didn't come at that time. It was a little bit later in the day when they delivered. But I, I just liked the, I liked the Bluebell ice cream. I've got my preferences as far as best flavor, but I think that if I really wanted to, I could probably eat Bluebell three meals a day. I've done that a few times, but I'm talking about every day, every day. And if I, I could even set aside some other things that I enjoy, and just a half gallon, I think that would do it. Morning, afternoon, night, I'd be good to go. Well, you can imagine if those were your choices, how quickly you would die. And Paul is basically saying that when we give in to our desires and just do whatever seems like it's right, seems like it will please us, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer some consequences. Paul also develops the positive side here, the positive side of this contrast. He says that... um, uh, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the, instead of the, the influence of the flesh, we have the Spirit. And instead of sin being active in our life, he says that we must kill sin, literally kill, putting to death the sin. And Paul focuses on these deeds of the body. Uh, the deeds are, it's the actual sinful behavior. It's not the... Um, not just the temptation. We can't put the temptation to death, but the deeds. And he says that if we do that, if we do put these sinful deeds to death, we will live. Very stark language that Paul is using here. It's interesting, um, when you think about this activity, um, it's necessary for us to live, but you still may be asking the question, well, how is it possible? How, How do you do that? And if we could just, for just a second, look back at the the verse, I want to point out just a couple things because I think Paul is telling us how to do this. He says here, for example, if you're putting to death the deeds of the body, and that's a present tense putting to death, a present tense that means that it's an ongoing activity. You you don't just put the deeds of the body to death on the first of the month and hope that that will carry you through or just once a week. It's a daily and probably a moment-by-moment decision that we have to have to continually, as we're faced with circumstances or decisions, to decide, I'm going to put these deeds to death. Paul also tells us here, he says, if by the Spirit, and that's an emphatic phrase, if by the Spirit you're putting to death these deeds, and then in the next verse he says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So twice he mentions this role of the 
Holy Spirit in being able to do this. So as we have this command or expectation to put to death these deeds, Paul's telling us that the secret is actually dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, if that sounds a little bit contradictory, contradictory, it is because it's a paradox. We, we have that paradox in a lot of the Christian life. And uh, as you reflect upon it, it's like, how can Jesus be 100% human and 100% God? Or how is, why is it that we have to pray about everything, and yet God gives us commandments to do certain things? Well, both are true. Both are true. So we're expected to put to death these deeds on a daily basis, but we must depend upon the Holy Spirit as we do so. If we don't have that dependence, uh, we'll probably be frustrated. If we're just trying to establish some goals or uh, put some boundaries in place or have certain rules that we want, like New Year's resolutions, um, it's probably not going to work. You'll probably be frustrated. But God says that we can live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And he, I like this phrase. He says, you're being led by the Spirit of God. The, lead, the leading that he refers to is not just a, hey, this is the, these are the directions for life, a manual, as it were, for, for life. It'd be similar, I guess, to uh, if you're doing some shopping with your six-year-old over at Target and gets close to lunchtime, you say, hey, let's cross the street. Let's go over to Five Guys or to Zio's or some other place and grab something for lunch. So you get up to 24th Street and uh, there with your child and, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait for a break in traffic and then... uh, you're going to have to run across to the median, and as soon as there's another break in traffic, I want you to run from there over to the far side, and uh, you've got to make sure that the cars aren't coming too fast, and be sure and look both ways, and uh, I want you to do this in just a few minutes. I'll catch up to you. And you stay there in the Target parking lot and watch, and you think, I think he'll make it. It looks like he's going to make it. Well, nobody does that. Nobody does that. If you have to cross from the parking lot of Target over to the restaurant row there, what do you do? You grab their hand. You grab their hand and you start walking when you can. You keep an eye on things and you make sure they're still holding on. The secret, if there is one, is don't let go. What Paul is telling us as we're navigating the circumstances, the pressures, the temptations of life, Don't let go. Keep holding on to the Father's hand. Who's doing the walking? Well, you are. But you're doing the walking in the right way if you stay holding on to his hand. So both are true. The Holy Spirit is guiding us the whole way. And we can walk with him. And Paul uses this phrase at the very end. He says, these are sons of God. You become a son of God from the time that you trust in Jesus Christ. But you develop a greater and greater family resemblance the more that you walk with God. The closer you are to him and the more that you walk with him. So in a practical sense, we become more and more like the sons of God that we were meant to be. But Paul says that um, if you do all this, you will live. And 
he doesn't develop the point right here exactly, but he's, he just says in this one-word summary, life or living. That's the result of the person for the person that is trusting in the Spirit's work. You could be a very faithful attender at Wildwood or a faithful believer in Jesus Christ in many ways, but if you're trusting in your own efforts, uh, there will probably be some frustration that you'll, you'll encounter. And, and I think that really your life before God is not as pleasing as it could be. This is a theme actually that Paul develops uh, throughout much of the New Testament. Uh, you can think of a verse like in Colossians, I think we've got it on the screen here. Uh, just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So you receive Christ as in faith, by faith. You need to continue to walk by faith as well. And if you do that, you will be pleasing to God. Uh, Hudson Taylor's a uh, person that comes to mind uh, at this point. Um, he was a missionary in China back in the 1850s, a long time ago. And he'd been on the field for a number of years uh, when it came time for his sabbatical, a, a furlough, to return back to England. So Taylor returned, and, and people held him up in some somewhat high regard, uh, a missionary been on the field. But he knew that he was a frustrated missionary. He hadn't produced much fruit. And in fact, he wasn't just a frustrated missionary, but he was a, his conscience condemned him. He knew that he wasn't right with God. So as Taylor went back to England, um, he, he didn't know what to do. But he fortunately met some other believers who basically shared the principle uh, from Romans 8, that life has to be lived in dependence upon God. It's a moment-by-moment, moment, uh, a continual walk with God. And it transformed Hudson Taylor's life. He returned to China some years later and began to see tremendous fruit in his labors. And he also started a mission agency, which became the largest mission agency in the world, China Inland Mission, for many, many decades. It was the largest. And what is more, uh, Taylor even wrote a book about his new perspective, and he, he called it The Spiritual Secret of Hudson Taylor, which was a, a, for a long time a bestseller. You can find this still in a lot of bookstores, but uh, it shares this principle of living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And Taylor began to live as he was intended to live. It became a blessing for tens of thousands of people in the process. Now, I'm saying all this, and I, I know that you probably won't start a mission agency, but what I do know is that God wants to use you in his service. God's got a role for you to bless other people. And I, I know that probably most of us won't write a, a bestseller about our devotional life, and, uh, but God does want you to live. He's got a, a tremendous, tremendously fulfilling life for you. And if you live it only in your own effort, making the choices as they seem good, you'll probably be frustrated. So the first of these great blessings that Paul talks about is this idea of living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It's a present that children can enjoy and pleasing God. Well, there's a couple more, and we need to get to them. Um, verses 15 and 16, Paul tells us, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption 
as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this first verb in this section, it says you've received, and that's looking back to the time that you trusted in Christ. So you've received the spirit of adoption. Uh, it's true that you become born again at that point, but the language isn't sufficient. It, you become born again, but it's too magnificent of an idea. And so Paul adds this thought of being adopted as well. They're both true. You're doubly, uh, for these two reasons, you're doubly God's children. Adoption was an interesting principle, uh, an interesting occurrence in that society. It wasn't common among the Jews, but it was among the Romans. And the Romans, uh, even among in the tombstones that you would see there, uh, a lot of people would proudly say, adopted son. Uh, the adoption that took place was a lot of times by a wealthy patrician in Rome uh, who wanted somebody to carry on the family name. And a lot of times they would choose adults to be adopted. Um, another interesting thing is that these uh, adults, it was a binding agreement, but basically any debt or prior relationship that they had was effectively canceled. I suspect that Paul probably had that in mind when he chose this term. There's also the thought that as a legal transaction, it had to be, uh, had to be seen or witnessed by at least two testimonies. Well, you've got the Holy Spirit and our own spirit testifying, he says in verse 16. But the basic thing about adoption, and I think this is really the central point that Paul wants to transmit to us, is that adoption involves a choice. And it's not the adopted person, the adoptee, I guess, that chooses. It's the adoptor. If you are a parent and you've been in a, before an adoption counselor or you've gone to an orphanage, the fundamental decision is do you or do you not want to adopt this child. It's a choice. We're just a, a few days away from a, another choice. Uh, the NFL draft will occur starting on Thursday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow it. Um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they kind of drag it out now. And during the draft, there will be 253 supremely gifted athletes chosen to play, potentially play in the NFL. Uh, but what's interesting is that there are many more than that that would like to be called, at least by Saturday, even if it's for the very last, the last position, Mr. Irrelevant, they call him. Uh, at that point on Saturday afternoon, you can bet that there will still be hundreds of players that will have their cell phones turned on, probably gathered with their family, just hoping, I hope that they'll call. A lot of them will be disappointed. But God is much, much more than an NFL team owner. And he doesn't look at us based on our merits, how much we can add to the team. It's, a lot of times it seems like it's despite our merits that God makes his choices. And he's looking at us, and he's issuing this call very broadly, and he says, I want her. I want him. And he's inviting us to come into this relationship through faith in Jesus Christ to be part of his adoptive family. God chooses us. When God chooses us also, it opens up to us 
a new world. In the, the contrast that we were looking at just a second ago, uh, the positive side of that is that when we have a, when we are adopted as children, the Spirit adopts us, and we sense this this acceptance from the Father. So we have free access, and Paul uses this term uh, as children. We cry out, Abba, Father. Abba was just a real simple term. In fact, it was probably the first term that a child would utter. Uh, It simply means daddy. And Paul uses the Aramaic and the the Greek terms. He he puts them together. Uh, But together, they just transmit a warmth, a closeness, being able to crawl up on the lap, and an acceptance. Acceptance which can can result in intimacy. So God wants to be intimate with us. The, the door is open. The call's been given. God wants to hold our hand. And we have the choice. So that intimacy, it's the same intimacy. You see Jesus himself using this phrase, Abba Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, towards the end. But God or Paul says here that this is the experience of the believer, that we can have this sense of closeness with God. Now, I say that, and I, I, I realize that intimacy with God is not always something that people want. Uh, in fact, it can be a little scary. Uh, I mean, this is, this is God we're talking about, right? And he could take us out. Uh, he, could, he knows what's going on. We can't, can't keep God at arm's length. He wants to be intimate with us. We still have a decision to make. It's an opportunity that we have before us, but we still need to develop and grow in that desire to want to have this relationship with God. That would be a result. And maybe we don't experience that on a moment-by-moment basis, this, this real intense desire, but uh, it is possible. Well, Paul develops a, a third idea. He's talked about this indwelling Holy Spirit that can give us the power to say no to sin and to say yes to the things that please God. And he talks about this, this affection or adoption that we have um, as re- also as a result of the Spirit's work. But he adds to these, this short list a, a third blessing in the last verse that we have. He says um, in verse 17, and if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, that a child is not only uh, blessed with the closeness of a father, but a father wants to provide and, and give to the child. And uh, sometimes those gifts occur after the father's passed on. So an inheritance is, is kind of what you expect. And Paul doesn't really develop the idea here of exactly what that inheritance is. But he does say it's, we are heirs of God. And then he adds this, it's really it's an amazing phrase, fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. Now, in a normal inheritance, what happens is uh, you're listening to the will be read and um, there's a divided inheritance, and you receive a part, siblings receive a part, maybe other people. So everyone receives a, a portion. But here Paul is saying that we receive every bit as much as Jesus Christ himself 
received. So what, what is it that Christ has received? I think it's everything. Everything that God has to offer. Paul uses the same language. Uh, he talks about an inheritance. He talks about adoption in Ephesians chapter 1. And we're not going to look there, but uh, if you were to look at the, that first chapter, the first verses, it's just a litany of the things that the, that the believer receives by virtue of trust in God. And Paul goes on and on talking about this, the manifold spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are ours. He talks about being predestined and chosen, being adopted and redeemed, being blessed and forgiven. All these things are ours as part of our inheritance. He says that we've been loved. We've been loved mercifully, graciously, inexplicably, yet lavishly, according to the wisdom and insight of God the Father, and all for his glory. These are things that are ours. There could be more waiting for us in the future, but right now we can enjoy at least this much of God's inheritance. There's this last phrase at the end of the verse, and I'm going to leave that for the next person that speaks here on this stage, uh, the idea of suffering. Just as Jesus Christ himself suffered in this world, we're with Jesus now. We will suffer. But that's next week's message. It'll be developed in greater detail in the next passage. But just summing up what we've talked about, what we've looked at this morning, Paul is looking to the past, and he's saying, if you looked back, the fact is that the believer has been adopted into God's family, and there are implications for that adoption up to the present day. And you can also look to the future and think of this great inheritance that's ours, and it's actually partly true. We, we have these things available to us now. And he's saying that also in our present, in the present day, the Holy Spirit is residing within us and giving us power to say no to sin and to say yes to the things that please God. So Paul is looking at these Father's Day presents, as it were, not presents that we give him, but that he's given to us. And he's blessing us time and time again in ways that are just unfathomable. I am um, started by talking about a, a night in which I had some trouble and came before my earthly father weeping. I, I became a Christian here at OU. I was in my sophomore year, uh, and a girl that I was dating, very graciously uh, led me to the Lord. And I, I can remember details about that night. It was very clear. Um, but I also can recall a night a couple weeks later, and I was seated in the SIGEP house uh, just off campus. And as I was seated there, uh, the speaker uh, was sharing these basic truths about how good God is and the things that God wants to do for us. And they were new for me. I just, I didn't have much familiarity with the Bible or the things of God. And as I heard these truths being laid out and explained, I was overwhelmed. And I left that meeting as quick as I could at the end, and I don't think I'd crossed Elm Avenue before I was on the, I was, I was weeping and just 
reflecting upon many of these same truths. And I, I spent a while wandering around North Oval. If you, the campus police had come on me, they probably would have taken me somewhere else. But uh, I was just amazed. And I, I say that because it's not my normal experience. Okay, and it may not be your experience today. But we do need to reflect upon these truths from time to time. Reflect upon how good our Heavenly Father is and the good things that He gives to us. And even if you feel distant from your Father, your Heavenly Father, and feel like that things could be better, that desire, that thought in and of itself is probably from the Holy Spirit. God is good all the time. God is good to us and he gives us great presence. And we can go to him because we know that that door has been opened, the acceptance is there. And we can reach out and know that when we extend our hand, his hand is already there and we can walk with him. The only question is, will we do it? Let's pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. All that we've talked about this morning, we don't deserve. And yet you are good to us. And Father, we know that we, if anything, we deserve to still be slaves, and yet you've called us to be sons and daughters. If anything, we deserve to die because of our sins. And yet we've been forgiven and adopted into your family. And Father, we give you thanks that we don't have to live as slaves chained to an old nature, but that we've been given a new nature by the Holy Spirit and promised a new future as well. So we give you thanks for these things, Father. And we pray that day by day as we walk with you, we could develop this sense of intimacy with you and truly live. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.